we started a church, and uh, I was there, and and I uh, had a situation happen that I never uh, unique in my lifetime. The church was doing well. We'd won some people. Things were going good, but I was a little uh, uh, unsettled. And that's when God called me because I kept asking the question, what are we going to do to reach the world? And I meant myself, what's my next? What do you want me to do to reach the world? Yeah. I was on a rural bus route. Uh, transporting uh, handicapped adults, and it was fall. I was 29 years old. The, the leaves were turning, and I went down this valley, and it, and it was a, it was as real as the Holy Ghost to me. It turns out, I was not supposed to be the one that was reaching the world. It turns out that you were the ones who were supposed to be reaching the world, and I was the one who's supposed to help by teaching and help you fulfill that role. And that's been almost 40 years, and I've been faithful to that call. I want to, I want to read a text because you're supposed to. So uh, we're going to do uh, 2 Timothy um, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 in the New King James. And this is uh, Paul writing to Timothy. He said, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier. In the Greek, there's a kind of fellow soldier here going on. I'm a soldier. You're a soldier. You signed up for this. Uh, you're suffering, but you know what? Guess what? I'm about ready to lose my head, you know? So uh, be a fellow soldier here. And then verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that it may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I want to speak to you on the subject, fighting the good fight. Fighting the good fight. In this passage, Paul deals with several things. He deals with uh, what it means to be a soldier as an example, what it means to be a farmer as an example, what it means to be an athlete as an example. And he returns to those often uh, but he's not trying to promote people into agrarian pursuits, nor make them a uh, winner in a race, uh, nor uh, cause uh, people actually to join the Roman legion. He's using it because there are parallels in the Christian life in all of these areas. And particularly today, we're going to focus on what it means to be a soldier. Uh, I could bore you to death about the Roman Legion. I will try to keep that very brief. Um, but landowners at this time were the ones who were volunteering to be a part of the Roman Legion. And the Roman Legion, you essentially made a sacred trust and commitment. And so it wasn't like these barbarians that were going, and charging into the lines. Roman Legion uh, soldiers were scary in another way. They never blinked when they killed you. Just another thing I'm doing. Another day at work. They fell out of place because they ate someone, took their place. They marched, and, and they had this, uh, they, it was all training. And so they were taking a, a castle, and they were showing, doing fiery darts and arrows. Hey, yep, the signal. They put, like, all their shields above them, called a testudo, like a turtle. And they moved in rhythm, and they lost their individual identity when they signed up to be a part of the Roman legion. 
They were part of a cause that was bigger than themselves. I did a lot of study too, on a, I, won't, I could tell you a lot of stories, we don't have time. I started doing nights, uh, like we're talking about 1000 AD and what it meant to be a knight. And that is the coolest thing, chivalry and all of that. I'll tell you a couple things. That's, <laughs> I, will not, I will not go long, but uh, so you, 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 you weren't born a knight. You weren't born a knight. You had to, you make your way to be a knight. And again, in this early time of chivalry, you'd be six or eight, you'd be taken from your family, you'd be, you'd be beat up, and, and, and not in a bad way, but you, you were the servant of all at, at another feudal lord's. And uh, you hung around until you were six, seven, eight, and then at some point, that's when you started doing everything. You were the servant of everybody. You cleaned up the messes before and after you served the dinners. You got to break in the horses. You started fighting with wooden swords, and you were working your way up, and you got through your teenage years, and you were, in, in your estimation, just about as good as any day, but they wouldn't let you wear the armor. They had a special ceremony for that where they, um, oh, lots of things in there. But one of the key things, well, you would lay before the altar like a cross, because you weren't doing it for yourself, you were doing it for uh, the church and for the kingdom, and it was all meshed together. And, and they wore this, uh, at that time it wasn't the big can opener sardine things, but it was the, the mesh metal that they wore, so it, it still wore, it was 30, 40 pounds. And early on, those swords were pretty big. You typically would not pick up this broadsword with a single hand, but both hands. And they developed the, the real two champions. They developed in such a way that they, uh, they were like a tank today. You know, if infantry, they see each other, well, we're gonna fight. A tank comes, they're like, we're gonna run. <laughs> so the, and, and the war horses were trained. And so they would, they would rush in and, and they would try to break the lines. And if they didn't, there was this sort of melee and it's all good how you were with a horse. You had a 10 inch lance. So you're running a few people over in the first thing. And then you take the sword and you go, and there's about three more that are down. And you reel it down and you get the next people down. Uh, one, and, and you were known by the name. If they knew such and such night is coming, they were heading for the hills. Probably the most, uh, taking too long on the nights. But one of the most famous nights is uh, Sir Godfrey. He's the, he's the guy that won Jerusalem back in the first crusade. They were at Antioch and they, were, they had to hold a bridge. He goes, well, I'll do it. He goes in, he goes on the bridge, and, and he runs them all through, whacks a few people. The first guy he whacks, he whacks him so hard, the top of his body falls off, and the horse is running just with the legs. Okay, so this is not a political endorsement for or against the Crusades <laughs> or the holiness of the Crusades. I do have a point before it's all over. It was the wall of Jerusalem and the and the tower where they were was falling away, and he by himself pulled it over so that he was the first one in, and they followed him. They won the day. Because he knew who he was, 
and he knew what he was raised for. And he knew he had a purpose greater than themselves. The chivalry aspect is, I will help the weak. I will help those who can't help themselves. I will not live for myself. I will not be selfish. I will live by morals that are right. I will be honest. So knights are cool. But I'm really not here to talk about that. My uh, wife had surgery, as you know, it was a week ago Tuesday. And so I brought with me at Mayo Clinic a bunch of books about apostolic pioneers, which I read to build my faith. And uh, this one is Bill Dross, The Pentecost. And uh, if you've never read it, it's a, it's a great read. Uh, I couldn't help, and I, I'm trying to figure out who actually wrote this because it was based on cassette tapes, and somehow his wife was involved, and somehow this other couple was involved. And then you got Wynn Stairs doing the thing. And everybody, whoever was writing all this, supposedly somewhat autobiographical, kept saying how average he was. <laughs> how he didn't have all these skills, you know? And Wynn Stairs, he says, yeah, he's a 15-year-old guy. He says, I want to be a missionary. I go like, well, maybe. Like, what? <laughs> what is that? He's the director of missions, you know? It's like, what? And uh, anyhow. Um, I got to tell you how he got the name Bill Drost the Pentecost. It's just not on my notes, and I don't have time for it, but it's just so cool, I have to tell you. <laughs> he started in ministry, and his idea was, if there's service going on, I'm going to be there. If there's people that need Jesus, he started his own Sunday school class. He, he was like this soul winner, and, he, he, that's, and, and that's what he cared about. And he wasn't really apparently that good a speaker, I guess. If if I can read between the lines or even like believe half of what the thing is saying, but, but he, he was a man of faith. He was a man that believed that God would do what he said he would do. So they asked him to come and go to this mental institution uh, to pray for somebody there. He didn't know anybody there, and he went in, and uh, the people that were inside said, one guy said, I know you, you're Bill Drost. And pretty soon, like, Three or four people were doing Ring Around the Rosy around him going, Bill drops the Pentecost, Bill drops the Pentecost. So that was Satan's taunt. Uh, but then he went and prayed for someone, and the devil came out of him, and that man was released. And so he used Satan's taunt as kind of like a, it was a nickname for him. You can call me what you want. You can make fun. But I am Bill Dross the Pentecost. I'm getting to a battlefield. I, I never really understood why he signed up for World War II. I don't think he did. He was already enlisted when he realized, I got to kill people. <laughs> I can't do that. So he prayed the entire time so he wouldn't have to kill anybody. And um, lots of things happened, which he didn't have to kill anybody. Thank the Lord. All right, so uh, he's out on the battlefield, and... Um, it's, it, it, they're going into Germany and, and people are like it's littered, the battlefield's littered with people and uh, they have to blow up this bridge so they send the first guy out with the dynamite he's dead and send the second guy out with the dynamite he's dead Drost, go out with the dynamite so I will pick up the story here and read it 
Okay, Dross, you go in. He'd been ordered. He said a quick prayer. Lord, if I have to be hit, don't let me be wounded here in the field so that someone will have to look after me. I want to die instantly. Then, without hesitation, he moved out from the cover with head held high, speaking in tongues. If ever he appreciated prayer in the spirit, he did now. Tracers flew about him. Bullets pitted the ground before the and behind. Still, he held steady pace, hardly aware of the screaming machine guns and stuttering rifles around him. He reached the rock and placed the explosive charge on it. Instead of beating it back to cover, he raised his hands and worshiped God in tongues, glorifying for his goodness. And then he saw a vision in the sky. The heavens opened and a great map of South America shone before him. All the northern part, which is Colombia, was ablaze with fire, fire of spiritual revival. And with the vision came a still small voice. I've called you to South America. This is where I am taking you. I'll skip the part. He realizes when he gets back safe uh, to the line that he has to tell his fiance he can't marry her because now he's called somewhere else. The vision set Bill thinking he must write to Ruth and tell her it was all off because he must go to Columbia as a missionary he shared his vision with uh, her um, in a letter. Unbeknown to Bill, about the same time that he had his vision, Ruth was attending a meeting at a Bible school. She received a call to go as a missionary. The very day he wrote to her, she was writing to tell him to forget about her since she had received a call to South America. The juice. <clears throat> My wife says, don't, don't do a drama unless there's romance in it or I'm not coming. So they went to South America and there was a missionary there in Colombia who had been called, literally called. God called him, gave him a vision. And uh, he went there and uh, he had enough money to rent a place, and he made the pews, and, and as he did, he's getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and when, when Bill gets in the room, Bill Dross, he sees that he's about ready to die. And um, he says, Brother Billy, I want you to get the, when you get a chance, take a trip into the mountains up to where the three crosses are. There's a picture in the book of this. I want you to look up the valley. Once I stood there in prayer and had a vision of a great revival that was going to take place in the valley. And then he slid off to sleep. Bill lay down and slept beside him. And finally, Sanford had one last bit of energy in him. He grabbed Bill's hand. He said, don't forget the vision. I believe this burden will fall on you. And I believe God is going to use you. You're young. You're full of life. You have the message. Your life is stirred by the Spirit of God. I can leave this with you and be happy. And within minutes, he was dead. I don't get that. God calls a guy to the mission field. He never has a service. 
He gives him a vision of a revival, and he dies. Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If he gave you a vision, follow the vision. If the vision doesn't seem to be coming true, follow the vision. I remember Brother Tenney, I, I asked him one time, I said, I thought when I got older I would have less vision, and I, I have more dreams than ever before. He says, oh, Brother David, that's so simple. That's not for you. That's for the next generation. I do not laugh at the battlefield. I do not take the carnage of conflict lightly, nor its broken bodies for little. Where the strong sometimes turn and run away, and the weak find courage to stand. Where heroes are not born, but are made. When every rep of your disciplines matter, and not an ounce of your training is wasted. I do not laugh at the battlefield. Other missionaries might send a servant to get food because the Protestants, they'd stick the dogs on them and throw rocks. And when they had the service, there would be 250 people outside and seven inside, and there was no breakthrough. And somebody wrote him, and he said, there's this big ladder rain. I'll send you a ticket. You can come. And he tells his wife, I'm going to go to Texas because God's moving there, and maybe we can get something going. He goes to the mountain, and God says, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I need the spirit. He says, you have the word. They wrestle back and forth, and he goes back, and, and he has a word from God. The next time he speaks, he sees a vision of a fire falling down. There's a murder in the, in the, in, in the crowd. And he's, his son sees the same vision, and, and immediately the Holy Ghost starts falling. Seven people get the Holy Ghost that night, and a great revival comes. There's a 17-year-old girl who's from the mountains, and she, she says, I want to go testify to my people. She goes back and testifies to her people, and instead of killing her, there's a great revival. Bill Dross goes up, and he preaches to them. There's threats, all kinds of threats. Um, there's more like threats of gunfire in, in this thing than you can. I mean, I don't know how many times his, his life was threatened. Uh, he would baptize them even with their guns on. I mean, he, he was fearless. Whether he had lots of speaking of talent, he could hardly speak Spanish. They said his Spanish was terrible. He could hardly do stuff. But he didn't care. He'd given up his pride a long time ago. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. God made a great revival. They had their first national convention. And while it was going on, there was a teenage uh, boy named uh, Lionel, and he was visiting the 97-year-old pastor, and there were five guys on horses, and they said to him, they said, Bill Dross is a gangster, and he says, 
I will not deny my faith in Jesus Christ. And they said, well, we'll show you. And they tied him to the end of their horse and they drug him. And then they stopped. Will you deny the, the Lord now? No. Will you deny the Lord now? No. And they did that and he got weaker and weaker. And finally they brought him near his home, tied him to a tree. And they said, will you deny the Lord? No. And five of them, each one pumped a bullet in his uh, body. I do not laugh at the battlefield. I do not take the carnage of conflict lightly, nor broken bodies for little, where the strong sometimes turn and run away, and the weak find courage and stand, where heroes are not born but are made, where every rep of your disciplines matter and not one ounce of training is wasted. I do not laugh. Martin and Alicia were in the church. Alicia stayed home so he could be a full-time evangelist. He was starting a church, and a gangster from the dark shot and killed him and said to the congregation, unless you all stop having service here, we're coming back tomorrow night, going to kill everybody. And Bill Dross said, we're having service. And the revival fell. And churches were born. And then Alicia, who uh, had lost her husband, Bill went to the place where they were, and uh, he got word soon that seven of them were killed. And he went and identified her body. And they had mutilated her body and shot her again and again. I could tell you about the persecution, but I also would tell you this, that 10,000 and then 20,000 and then 30,000 people came into the church and then 50,000. I do not laugh at the battlefield. Sometimes I ride to school with Jeremy Painter, need to ride. And uh, we talk about a lot of interesting things. But he usually has some kind of shtick of what he's thinking about. And a couple different times, he said to me, he said, uh, Brother Norris, we're not doing a good job in the UPC. We don't highlight the need for teaching. He said, do you know it takes 10,000 hours 10,000 hours to become competent at something. And what are they learning? They don't even know the Bible. They come and they're, and they're, what are they doing here? And how are they spending their time? And how are we promoting teachers? Like I could do something about it. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I was like 14, like 60 questions on the Godhead. I ought to know that. I ought to, I ought to memorize all these scriptures. Like, why wouldn't I? 
Oh, tract on salvation. I don't memorize all these scriptures. Why wouldn't I? I was a Bible quizzer. I turned the music on. I went downstairs. I would memorize. This was olden days, Bible quiz. We had no quiz cards. I cut out little cards. Not with a chisel or anything like that. It was ancient. I went to, I went to a class, and I wrote the notes down, and then I typed up the notes with a typewriter. Some of you don't know what a typewriter is, but I had a typewriter. We're late, but we're not too late. We're not too late. Before I had that call to work in Bible college ministry, I was talking to a missionary about how we're going to reach the world. And he said, uh, are you called to be a missionary? It sounds like you really should need to be a missionary. I said, oh, no, no. God's never talked to me about that. He said, have you ever volunteered? I said, what? Yeah. God's not going to take anyone against their will. Have you ever volunteered? No. What if you gave 30 days and you listened to the Lord and, and, and say, is there something you want to tell me? Is there a way you want to call me? Is there something you want to do? And you volunteered. And I said, Okay. And nothing happened in that 30 days. But then after that is when God spoke to me. And when he first spoke to me, I said, nope. It means I'd have to go work with my grandfather. And I can't do that, Lord. But I don't want the blessings of this church to be lost. So I yield myself to whatever it is you have for me. And God gave me a love the calling that he called me to. Need that sword. McQuay, come up here. You bring a sword? No, McQuay, you come. I'll get someone else to bring it. There comes a time when a knight has to decide. Come up here. Just for the sake of the camera, I'm going to have you kneel, but kneel that way. Thank you. Kneel right down there, face the audience. There comes a time when a knight has to decide, I'm done playing with the wooden sticks. I appreciate polishing armor. I don't really like cleaning up after the horse, but I'll do it. But now I'm ready to give my life. I'm ready for every day to be a dedication. I want to live and breathe the calling that I have received. I will say yes. Almighty oh, man of God, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all suffering and doctrine. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but because of their itching ears, they will heap to themselves teachers. But you, be patient, endure affliction, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Rochelle. You hear it? Come on. Neil. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, convince, rebuke, exhort with all suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but because of their itching ears, they will heap to themselves teachers. But you, beloved, be patient, endure affliction, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Walk with me, Rochelle. McQuay, stand. Both hold the sword. The persecution in Colombia was tremendous. The girl that Brother Norris was speaking about, Eucardis, she was in our home in Ecuador many, many, many times. The Spirit of God actually emanated, radiated from her. She went back to her home on, in a little community called La Morena. She began to speak about the things that God could do and change the lives of individuals and provide a power that eternity would be their goal and etc. Over 500 in just a few moments or just a few days were brought into the kingdom. But when God begins to move, the enemy releases all of his power. Persecution was started in La Morena. Outside of the house that, sis that Sister Erocades lived in and her parents, over 300 of the people the converts that she had made were killed, slaughtered, martyred at one time. But as the people fled La Morena, they went to all the major cities of South America. And the first thing you know, the church was multiplying time and again. Persecution, blood is the lubricant 
of revival. And so tonight, or rather this afternoon, what we need to do is to make our commitment. When you come into this work, you come in where there is no discharge. You're going to face things in this coming generation that this world will be amazed to see. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be murder. There's going to be killings. There's going to be blood. Yes, right here in this United States of ours. Now, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to ask each of you that are sitting upon these chairs in this chapel service, I'm going to ask you to think within your heart, am I capable to change the world around me? Am I capable to face the challenges that are going to come? Am I capable to reach this world? I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Eucharist was only 17 years of age. Over 500 in just a few days had been won to God. She and her husband were frequent visitors in my home and to hear the stories of the persecution, of the blood, and the hardship, you as an individual are here to prepare for this oncoming revival that this church has to have before his return. So I'm asking right now, Make your commitment. Think about it. Am I capable of making this commitment? Am I capable to be a part of this oncoming generation that is going to reach our world before his return? I want you, if you're able to say yes, I want you to walk up to this front committing your life Answering the challenge. I cannot tell you how many times that Sister Scott and I had to run for our lives in Ecuador. I remember one particular time that I had to pick her up because she was falling. And I carried her into the nearest refuge in order to save our lives. I've had a revival. I've had a rifle pointed at me. Stop your preaching. But you've got to face the challenge with a commitment. I'm going to continue. I will not let the stones cry out. Now, I'm asking you right now, 
let the Lord speak to your heart. Let him call you. Let him commit you. Be committed to his cause. God is speaking to many of you. Some of you may have to face hardship, difficulties, situations that are unbelievable. But he who calls is able to sustain. Come on, folks, let's make our commitment. Let's reach for him right now. Let's volunteer for this war. Lord, let your spirit fall like a blanket upon this congregation. Speak to us, Lord. Powerfully motivate us. Reach for us, Lord. a 17 year old girl could do what she did think of what you can do with the preparation of men like Brother Norris lift that heart lift that mind reach for him He's calling. He's appealing. Yes, yes, yes. Lord, let your spirit reach out and touch the hearts of these precious people. Lord, let us be able to say yes. Yes. Let 
God communicate. Yes. Don't forget that blood and persecution is the lubricant of revival. Be willing. Here am I, Lord. Send me. individuals in this congregation that are going to be movers of revival. Speak to them now, Lord. Speak to them now, Lord. Call them, Lord God, with an irrevocable call, an irrefutable testimony. Do it, Lord. 